Episode 50 of the Vincast is only two episodes away. And if you haven't already, or even if you have gotten in touch with me, please do so again about your interest in being a part of the 50th episode. Basically, guys, this is an opportunity for listeners to the podcast to dial in via Skype and chat with me, the intrepid wino, also known as James Gersbrook, and share their impressions of the podcast, share their stories about wine, ask me questions about wine or about myself, and uh, get interactive. Uh, it's always great to hear from you, whether it's uh, online, on social media, through the website, or even in real life. I love meeting people who have listened to the podcast and with hearing which episodes they've enjoyed. So this is a great opportunity for you to be on the uh, on the episode itself and be able to hear yourself um, basically forever for posterity because it is digital. It's not a broadcast. It's a podcast. So do get in touch with me at uh, thevincast at gmail.com uh, or you can do so through intrepidwino.com or even via social media, intrepidwino.com. Uh, on uh, Twitter or the Vincast on Twitter as well. But um, if you don't do so quickly, then you'll miss your opportunity to be part of such a fantastic episode. Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, also known as the Intrepid Wino. And as you just heard me say, we are very close to episode 50. Very excited about that. I can't believe that we've uh, got to that point. Uh, we've had some really fantastic guests. If you haven't uh, listened to many episodes before, if you're a new listener, I strongly urge you to go back and uh, listen to some of the episodes or listen to all of them if you have time. It's uh, it's always fun to hear from people uh, how they're listening to the uh, podcast, whether it's on public transport or in the car or whilst they're at work. Um, one of my former guests, in fact, surprised me telling me that he uh, listened to basically every episode and he does so in the winery uh, so shout out to brad hickey uh, who i think was over in melbourne just last week now as i mentioned 50th episode i'm gonna put in a few changes to the podcast um, which i'm really excited about uh, i did mention on a previous episode that i was really um, keen for people to um, help me out via um, designing logos or um, obviously just putting the word out and sharing the, the podcast uh, online or in real life. Uh, and I also asked uh, if anyone wanted to uh, help me out by perhaps writing some music that I could use as the theme music for the podcast. And in fact, um, a two-time guest, Daniel Honan, was uh, very gracious in, in uh, putting together some music for me, which I will actually be debuting on episode 50. So I'm really excited about that. It was It's a really great piece of music uh, and I can't, he can't wait to hear what you guys think of it. Um, well, yeah, some of the other changes I'm going to be making, hopefully, um, from episode 50 is I'm actually going to be answering questions. Uh, so if, um, you know, if you guys want to send me a question via email or on social media or through the website, and I will try and answer those questions to the best of my ability. And I'm also going to be starting to ask you a question. So every episode, I'm going to ask you a question. And again, I would love to hear your answers. Uh, so uh, if you want to do that, just um, just listen out because uh, I'll be doing those. Uh, I'll, I'll be answering the questions at the start of the episode 
and asking questions at the end. So make sure to listen to all the way through. So this week's episode kind of follows on from what we're talking about last week with Damien Wilson about wine marketing. Now, of course, uh, Damien is a, a wine marketing professor. He teaches uh, wine marketing and wine business. But uh, for this week's episode, I've got Kathy Lane, who is the driving force uh, and owner of Fireworks PR. So we're going to talk about wine public relations and how it actually does help the wine industry uh, in terms of communicating and connecting with an audience uh, and eventually the end consumer. So she uh, came on and was talking about her background, how she actually ended up working in that particular field, and she talked about how important it is uh, for wine public relations uh, in uh, this very com- competitive and complicated market. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please do get in contact with Kathy and myself, uh, but I will see you on the other side. <laughs> Kathy, it is lovely to have you here in the studio for a change on the Vincast. Thank you very much for making time um, to be here. Thank you very much, James. I'm very proud to be here. Tell me, Kathy, how long... Have you been uh, interested in wine? When when was the kind of the first interaction you had that kind of made you kind of notice something about it? Okay, well, my father was a collector of wine, so I've always um, been around wine, even as a kid. And we used to do all the you know the morning peninsula grape grazing and up to the Yarra Valley, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When I first started working in wine, though, was when I actually travelled overseas and uh, I went away for an extended period of time, travelling through Europe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Ended up back in London and decided I didn't really want to come home and got my first job in hospitality, which was working in a restaurant, running a restaurant in Chelsea Harbour and then in um, the West End. And that's where I really developed my love of wine and I was working It sounds like you had a very kind of young Australian rite of passage sort of thing, travelling through Europe, getting to London, I don't want to go home hospitality. Absolutely. And, you know, Australians in the UK particularly have a great uh, reputation for being, you know, hard workers and having a good work ethic and having fun. So that was absolutely the perfect environment for me. And uh, the restaurant that I ran actually was owned by a couple of members of the royal family. So that was... Really? Yeah, that was pretty wacky too. Uh, On my first night, I met Princess Diana. So that was just wild. Wow. Yeah, that was really cool. So I stayed in London for about four years running the restaurant. They sponsored me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then that ran out and I had to come home. Mm-hmm. So then I worked in restaurants here and then I ended up working for a broad range wholesaler at the time called Dilatere, which was run by Peter Ma, who lots of people know in this industry. And from there I went and worked with Tucker Seabrook and I was with Tucker Seabrook for six and a half years, some in Melbourne, some in Sydney. What were you doing at Tucker Seabrook? Well, I ended up, I started off doing some sales supervising stuff in the Victorian office and then I ended up in Sydney uh, working directly with Robin Judy Hurst running the National Advertising Communications Department which was actually my background I studied advertising and PR at RMIT and worked for a long time in the advertising industry so I'd kind of come full circle sure uh, which was great and uh, so, so the, the Tucker Seabrook is a distributor and importer or they were yeah they were yeah they were actually that's, that's Australian. pretty amazing that you know we're talking about a time when Imported distributors actually had an advertising budget. Well, indeed, and that, well, that we had an really uh, see that much. No, anymore. well, you know, we used to have an A and P fund. So of of every um, sale that went through, there was there was some money that was siphoned off into an A and P fund, which funded activity. And what has happened, obviously, over time in the industry is that sort of middle layer of management and marketing has really been 
you know, eroded and that responsibility has kind of gone back to the wineries themselves mm. to put on their own people. And now and, distributors and then, are really just doing that. They're just sales and distribution. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, you know, my, in my experience working for, for Chandon, mm. um, I guess it was a little bit different because, you know, Malt Hennessy have its own distribution, but there was still the same kind of complexities where the winery was uh, expected to have a budget set aside for, mm. you know, advertising promotion and brand building and that kind of thing. Mm. And then Malt Hennessy would run sort of trade activities in an effort to um, communicate with, with, with the market, I guess. But, you know, the, yeah. sort of the broad range type stuff that was that was from the winery yeah well this is this is quite a long time ago though you know i've been i've since well i've had my own business now for nearly 12 years so you know we're talking a little way back but yeah i mean obviously that's exactly how the industry has evolved that that responsibility for marketing and funds and brand development has really been pushed back to the the brand owner um and and the distributors do just that distribute and, and sell that's that's kind of it so what was the nature of sort of advertising promotion, public relations back in that kind of period of time? Well, it was a heyday. I mean, I, I was very lucky to work with Tucker Seabrook. At that time, they were Australia's oldest you know, family-owned um, wine distribution business. They started in 1838, which was pretty wacky. Wow. Yeah, it was great. So there was a lot of history and a very smart portfolio. You know, we were working with Champagne Bollinger and Grand Marnier and um, Cape Mantel and Henschke and Bannockburn and, you know, like – just amazing, amazing brands to work with. Some Historic brands too. Absolutely. You know, um, Jabolay and just fantastic brands. So that was a treat. I mean, obviously working with great brands and through great brands, you meet great people. Mm. So that was incredible. And because we did have uh, an A&P fund and because Tucker's was very committed to quality, you know, they were, if you did something, you did it well. So, you know, doing dinners with Bollinger and Jabalay at Tetsuya's and, you know, just being part of the 2000 Olympics living in Sydney and having all of our principals fly in from around the world to be part of that event. Um, you know, just incredible experiences really that I'll never forget. And really Judy Hurst, uh, God bless her soul, um, was my mentor. And she really took me under her wing and, and taught me everything I know really, and really empowered me to start my own business. I would think that that would have been a really interesting opportunity um, because it would have given you the opportunity to actually connect with um, I guess, media mm. as well as kind of trade and market? Absolutely. I think what the experience of working for Dilatair first and then for Tucker Seabrook did for me was allowed me and gave me the opportunity to understand the channels. So I understand how on-premise works sure. and I understand how off-premise works. And look, I don't claim to be a salesperson. I sell stories. I, I'm not at the cold face, you know, treading pavements and making appointments to go and see people. But having an understanding of, of how the trade works and knowing some of the key players in the trade who are, you know, contacts to this day is, well, is important. To be honest, I consider all forms of communication sales. Yeah. And, and I consider sales to be a form of communication. Indeed. So I agree. Every, everything you do to actually improve people's, you know, understanding and perspective or um, perception of wine is generating sales. Well, and it's about education and it's about, you know, storytelling and telling the tales behind what's in the bottle. You know, yeah. the bottle can speak for itself. Mm. Um, but that's what I learned to do really with Tucker's was was tell stories. And and what, what was sort of the next step after Tucker Seabrook? 
After Tucker Seabrook, oh, I came back to Melbourne. So we were living in Sydney and uh, I became pregnant and pregnant with twins. So that was kind of interesting. So we decided that it was probably time to come home, that we might have needed a little bit of help. Um, so we came back to Melbourne. I took six months maternity leave and then went back to Tucker Seabrook in a sort of part-time capacity. And it really was a shame because they just kind of didn't know what to do with me. You know, I'd had this big role in Sydney where I had five people on my team, et cetera, et cetera. Coming back to a part-time role, there just wasn't really space for me. Um, they didn't quite know how to utilise my skills. It's difficult when you work part-time to get kind of traction. So I sort of, you know, messed around a bit there and then um, decided that it was time. It was just time. I needed to probably develop some flexibility for myself when you've got little babies. Um, so I started my own business from home. Right, and that was? And that was fireworks. fireworks, PR promotions and events, yeah. Okay. Now, this is a probably a pretty interesting period of time as far as the wine industry in general. Yeah. Um, when you, you the concept of, of a PR firm probably already existed well and truly, but for wine, I would think it was probably still a... a somewhat new concept well kind of yeah there would have I been suppose. PR agencies I would think that would probably work with some wine brands but not kind of in that sort of specializing way yeah I think you're probably right um there were a few sort of lifestyle specialists and at that time around the same time I mean Angie Bradbury and Stuart Gregor had started Liquid Ideas in Melbourne so that was very much a specialized agency so I I certainly was that time we sure. were all kind of doing that um and i started actually doing some other stuff my very first client uh was a, a naturopathic health company because at the time when you're starting you just go look i'll do anything you know pr skills can are portable and they are um so i did some work with a, a company called martin and pleasance and I, my second client was the state library of victoria which was fantastic cool. so i became their sponsorship and events manager for their foundation which was the fundraising arm of that uh fine fine institution and i was there for four years so that was great to kick me off my third client was abercrombie and kent which was a luxury travel business so I, i'd kind of moved away a bit from specializing in wine and i was in sydney once with um a friend having a drink and I met uh, someone who looked after PR in a hotel okay and the travel industry is rife there's lots of PR companies that do travel that's a very specialized area and she said to me what are you what are you good at and I said well you know most of my experience is in wine and sort of hospitality and she said well what what are you, who are your clients I said well I've got a travel business and I've got the state library and I've got this and she said but, but what are you really really good at and I said well I'm kind of really good at wine really she said do wine and I thought yeah do wine, do what I'm good at and do what I know most about. So that was really an impetus for me to really specialise. So then I picked up some small kind of project clients. Um, and then over time, I've had some really solid relationships with wine companies. So I've done a lot of work with Tabilk. I delivered their implemented and planned and delivered their 150th anniversary celebrations in 2010. Uh, I started working that same year with Australia's first families of wine, who are still a client, of course. I look after Tarawara from Yarra Valley, Kiri Hill from the Clare. So, you know, and I've done loads and loads and loads of, of project stuff over the years with wine. So, yeah, we, we've very definitely become wine specialists. Now, for those people who probably don't understand, I think everyone has obviously heard about PR or what public relations is, mm. but what's your kind of um, definition, I guess, of public relations 
And then how does that work as far as the wine industry is concerned? Okay. Well, public relations is really about um, communicating a message. So we are the coalface for our clients with the media and people who are talking about wine. Now, obviously what's happened in over the years is that the media landscape has changed very, very dramatically. So whereas it used to be a very traditional approach, mm. obviously we've got the rise of online and bloggers and you know the whole digital thing's insane. So, so in the same way that markets yeah. have become more fragmented, so has the media landscape. Well, it has because, I mean, if you look at column, column centimetres are, are shrinking, mm -hmm. so you are in a very competitive place to, to get cut through. So what that's meant from a public relations point of view and a communications point of view is that you've got to be really sharp with your message and you've actually really got to have a story to tell. There's no point... You know, for instance, if I was working with a restaurant, which I have done some work with restaurants, sending out a media release about a new menu is not news, okay? It might be an FYI, but it's not news. So it's very important to be able to manage your client's expectations around what is news, mm -hmm. yeah? Because everyone thinks everything they do is news, and that's not necessarily the case. So it's become increasingly difficult to find that USP for, for brands. And that's why we really only work with brands that have good stories to tell. Sure. Because if you're trying to manufacture something, something that's not authentic, you know, it's kind of pretty transparent. But essentially what you're doing is you're working with, <clears throat> you're working with a client yeah. to sort of find a story, find, find what you want to say. And then your responsibility is to actually take that to um, to the, the market. media, to, yeah. to, to, to journalists or to, to whoever opinion leaders sure. in some form in an effort to generate some buzz. Yeah. Buzz. And, and some publicity, but yeah. it really depends. Many clients, everyone's got a different objective. So the first thing is to determine what is the objective and depending on, it might be the launch of a new product. So it might be a short term project. Brands like um, or groups like Australia's First Families of Wine, we've got a more consistent approach. So we we are looking at consistent messaging across, you know, activity across the year. Whereas if you're just launching a new range, for instance, that might be a short term three month project. Yeah. So it depends what the objective of the project is. But and it's very very important to understand what the client is looking for and what their expectation is. We then go away and put together some ideas, some top line thinking about how we might be able to get their message out there. It's not just about media engagement. It could be around events. It could be. Yeah. Well, cause I was going to say, um, I guess it's important to distinguish between PR and advertising, which is yeah. where, you know, you're, you're basically, you know, buying yeah. a space in which to, you know, advertise something or, or talk about the, the the brand um but there's a, a big component of that pr is is events because events tend to get a lot of attention well because we're in a, a society now that's obsessed with wine and food and experience sure. you know the rise of events has been enormous the, the the basic difference i suppose between pr and advertising is yes advertising is paid and you are in control of your message okay when you trust pr you have to trust that there are no guarantees that the strength of the message um, is what's going to get it across the line, the, the strength of the newsworthiness. And really, there's a lot of luck involved in PR. It's it's a lot about serendipitous timing. Sure. You know, I mean, I, if I deliver a, a pile of Shiraz samples to 
Ralph Kite Powell and he just happens to be tasting Shiraz that week, that's great. And you don't always know that. So there is an element of luck in all of that. So clients have to understand that nothing's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. But when you can generate some publicity through PR, it has a third-person endorsement, so it gives it some added credibility because you haven't paid for the message per and thinking, se. And thinking about my own wine business studies, yeah, the the value of that kind of third-party endorsement that, and that PR can, is considered much more than traditional advertising is because because people are sort of so switched off to a lot of advertising and they kind of just gloss over things they just flip the page in a a magazine or they just don't they don't really look at a billboard or something like that whereas if they're they're looking at the content of a publication or um a a a piece on tv or online or something like that Mm. they're already engaged with that and so if if you're having that kind of third-party endorsement, that is a much more powerful way to connect to an audience. Well, it is. And, I mean, obviously, traditionally, reviews have been uh, great tools for salespeople to be able to take out to try and get some cut through when they're selling the products. Have you seen a big a big move away from um, reviews and, and Look, kind of absolutely. Thing? I mean, people are, are still interested in them and, obviously, they still want – they still help build credential of, of wine. I, but I just think um, – you know, we are so overwhelmed with the amount of media that we consume. You know, mm. if you think about the amount of things you see every day, whether it be on social media or, you know, radio or TV or YouTube or whatever you, however you're consuming your media online, it's, it's pretty difficult to get cut through. It's, it's, it's hard. So it's got to be compelling. It's got to be a compelling story. It's got to ring some bells for someone. Or, you know, some people go down the more controversial path. It's got to be controversial to try and encourage discussion. Sure. And obviously the, the key to good messaging is, is, is that it's got to be short and sharp. And, you know, the rise of things like Twitter, particularly in, in wine communication, has been phenomenal because, you know, we've, you've got 140 characters to get involved. Hmm. I remember when I was working at Shandon and I, and I was given the incredible responsibility of looking after the, the Shandon Twitter accounts. Yep. Um, the, the the person who you know was traditionally doing a lot of the PR for for the business was kind of coaching me on how to do it, and like I'd write something and then I'd be go over the 140 characters and you go, okay, have a really close look at it and yeah. work out what you what you need to say, yeah, and cut things out that you don't need to cut. You don't need that word, take it out. You can yeah. shorten that word, take that out. Yeah. It was just like a wow, I'd never even kind of thought because. You know, I'm sure people who have listened to the podcast know I'm quite a verbose person. <laughs> I do tend to waffle. Uh, and if you re- read any of my um, essays from, from uni or high school, you know, I do kind of waffle on quite a lot. So to actually have to restrict myself in that way was really, really difficult for me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It, it is definitely quite an art. And, um, you know, my colleague, um, Megan Mitchell, who looks after our social media stuff, she's really good at just cutting to the chase, which is fantastic because we do look after some social media for some of our clients as well but you know same with social media i really encourage brand owners to do it themselves because their voice is always going to be the most authentic but yeah that's exactly right you know and and i think that the audience um, connects with that kind of authenticity well i think particularly in the twitter space where you're talking a lot to influencers and and you know wine interested people and media and other winemakers you Mm. know you need to be on top of your game do you find people sort of 
kind of switch off to, in, in inverted commas, PR. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I don't think. Well, particularly like you know, for example, wine writers. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting relationship, isn't it? Because we kind of it it is a symbiotic relationship, and yes, we do need each other. I I think PR people often get a a bad rap, and um, there are some some practitioners in our space. Maybe I, I who, kind of blame Bill Hicks for that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Why? Oh, well, there's a famous bit of stand-up he did where he said, if, you know, anyone here working in you know, advertising or marketing, just kill yourself. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, there's good and bad practitioners in any, in any um, industry, and I suppose there's some in our space who have kind of come and gone and not done us too many favours. Uh, you know, there's a lot of media, not necessarily wine media, who really bag out PR people, but, you know... I, I I feel sad about that. Do you know what I mean? Because we're all just doing our best, trying to make a living and do a good job for our clients. That's the bottom line. And I suppose the they, cream they still need to be provided with content. Well, they do, and that's why I say it is a symbiotic relationship. Um, but you know, maybe they, they just don't like to feel PR'd. So you know, I, I'm very judicious. As we're very judicious as a business about what we send out. We don't send out things we don't believe in. We don't represent brands that we don't like or don't, you know, buy into, um, you know, I don't chase up after I've sent out samples or sent out a media release. I don't ring and go, oh, did you get my samples? Yeah, great, thanks. Mm. You know, what's that conversation about? Mm. Everybody's busy. So I try and be respectful of everybody's time and take them on a journey when I can. You know, if I've got a story that I think's worthy, I'll, I'll pitch it. If I don't, I won't. Um, you know, if we've got an opportunity, I, I talk to people about, yeah, we're doing this thing at the winery. Would you like to come? Yes or no? Look, everyone's busy. Everyone's time poor. And I think you have to, you know, respect that. But what we are very big up on is, you know, spelling and grammar and making sure that, you know, things are communicated well. So I want to go back to 2008. Mm-hmm. So GFC hits. Mm-hmm. And the market goes kind of a bit haywire. Yeah. And budgets kind of, I would think, change. Now, probably traditionally, uh, maybe a larger wine business, a winery or, you know, distributor might have had a a dedicated um, budget Mm. in terms of salary Mm. towards PR and events. And that typically might would have been one of the first things to be kind of removed as as our, as budgets were kind of slashed and people mm. needed to kind of cut costs to try and maintain some profit margin. Yeah. Um, did you do you think that kind of changed the landscape somewhat to allow you know because I would think businesses would be able to say well we can't justify uh, a full time salary you know per annum mm. let's let's kind of engage with uh, a PR specialist on a project basis yep. or, you know, you know, have them on retainer yep. for a fraction of the cost. Do you think that kind of did impact yeah, a little look, bit I, on, on the landscape? Oh, yeah, of course. I think it certainly did because, I mean, obviously export markets were shattered and, and um, you know, people really had to, to pull their belts in. Um, we, were, we were certainly able to weather that storm because we're still here, pardon me. Um, I suppose some... Clever marketers see an opportunity in a downtime to actually, 
you know, increase their market share. And some people did that very well. Haven't studies said that, that in fact, in times of down or in recession, Trouble, yep. that's the best time to be investing. It, I suppose, you know, maybe not, you know, in terms of money, but in terms of intelligence. Yep. Um, because when things do improve again, you're well you positioned. Are front of mind That's right. For I, the consumer. I think the worst thing people can do is drop the ball mm. because then when, you know, everything <clears throat> is, is cyclical, of course. And when things do start to rise again, if you've just dropped the ball and you haven't been consistent with your messaging or your engagement with, with market, you're kind of behind the eight ball again. You know, you've, you've got to start. Front of mind and off the map. Absolutely. Absolutely. So look, we were very lucky at that time. We started working with Tabilk in 2009 because they were working towards their 150th anniversary in 2010. Mm -hmm. So they, they, as a family business, made a huge investment in celebrating that milestone and good on them because they were absolutely right dead in the middle of GFC. But they committed. We were able to really do some really strong work with Tabilk over those next few years and really put them back on the map because it had been some time since they'd done that. So, you know, yeah, I agree. Smart marketers, you know, stay front and centre. How did you kind of approach that project? Was it, were you kind of engaged to purely sort of handle the PR side of things and, and no. generate a story? Was it no. much, it was a 360 kind of um, yeah. look at, let's, let's really do everything we can to, to, to rebuild and, and focus on that 150th. Absolutely. And they had a marketing director and I'd known to book for a long time because at Tucker Seabrook, we used to distribute to book. So I was familiar with the brand anyway. What we did is absolutely had a global look at the brand and where we could get involved. And that's where I think, um, our knowledge of the channels, the sales channels has been really powerful because we were able to put together both a trade, you know, a media and a consumer campaign around that 150th messaging. And as I said, the Perbrick family made a huge commitment to that financially, which was fantastic. So we put together some consumer type events. We did a media and a launch. We did some trade stuff and tastings. We got involved in the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Tabilk had never done that before. Um, we worked very closely with the Grossi family. You know, we drove publicity around the different sort of story angles that, that come out of Tabilk, and there are many because it's such, well, it's Victoria's oldest family-owned winery, so there's plenty going on up there. Um, so, yeah, we I worked, I really became an extension of their team, to be honest, and, and John Irvine and I worked remarkably closely together to put together the plan, engage with magazines, putting together winemaker dinners, all of those stuff. So we had a, a very big calendar events over the course of the year. And I was very lucky to, we engaged with Tourism Victoria and we did a whole raft of events in the UK. You know, we went over to London Wine Trade Fair. We did some um, trade stuff there through our distributor there. We worked with Tourism Victoria to deliver some media outcomes. So it was a phenomenal year. It was it was great, but it was a very comprehensive campaign. And I would think that it would be pretty um, complex in terms of engaging with so many stakeholders and mm. then so many channels and kind of getting the investment from um, organisations outside of Tabilk to kind of sell in the propositions like, look, you know, the story is Tabilk, but it's going to generate so much attention and, and you know, revenue down the line mm. for, you know, the region, Victoria, yeah. um, Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. You know, there, there's so much more to it than merely 
how you to build 150. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was important to um, illustrate that there was a very comprehensive campaign behind all of this activity. You know, it wasn't just a one-off. We didn't just run one event. We ran a series of events. We did a, a very comprehensive sort of publicity campaign. We engaged with media right up front to kind of get them on board um, by holding a three-day event at the at the winery where we looked at, you know, Marsan dating back to, you know, 1955 and Shiraz back to 48 and, you know, like remarkable opportunity mm. and definitely a one-off opportunity. So we were able to generate some really good stuff. We worked really closely with some magazines stakeholders as I said we work really closely with Tourism Victoria so you know again what is PR PR is engaging and telling that story to build relationships and build rapport and get people on board and so that's what we did and I think that um, having a specialization in wine and the wine industry gives you that experience and understanding of the way the market works and there's existing relationships not just with media mm. Or, or you know other organizations but also with you know probably wine is one of those products where the the trade are much much more important in terms of opinion yeah. um and 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 focusing that message through to the end consumer than a lot of other industries so that's where your experience would would, would probably help a lot more yeah I, think. I suppose I mean yeah certainly the trade of the gatekeepers whether it's it's on or off premise you know they have to be engaged and believe in your product um, at the well, end I mean, of the if you just look at you know the, the big um, seller of wine in Australia are the, the, you know, the, the two big retail companies yeah and of course in-house they're doing a lot of communications you yeah know, with their websites with their catalogs in-store you know um that, that 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 is all helping get the message out and so so even then it's so it's so important to make sure that the the clarity of the message is is so important yeah but it's also about um you know building relationships because i mean in order to be given the opportunity to sell your message you've got to build a relationship behind the scenes of course. so you know i think pr isn't just about um you know engaging with media and stuff it's about engaging with other influencers and, and being an advocate for the brands that you believe in, whether it be with your own networks, your own friends, whether it's via connections on, you know, business connections on Facebook, you know, whatever. You've got to be kind of talking the talk on behalf of your brands. That's that's the point. Bringing people together, you know, cross-promotional opportunities, networking. It's not as simple as just, you know, writing a media release. It's It's far, far more comprehensive than that. One of the, um, the really exciting kind of, um, I guess, PR kind of concepts and stories for me in the past sort of five or ten years is yeah. definitely the Australia's First Families of Wine kind of organisation and, and you sort of represent that yeah. kind of loosely. How involved were you in, in terms of the establishment of that group? Okay, so the group started in 2009, but it had been something that um, the founding kind of members, you know, Robert Hill Smith and Alistair Purbrick and Ross Brown really were the sort of drivers of that initiative in in the first instance. They'd been working on that for some time. You know, they'd sure. had this idea. They, they, they put together some criteria. They went out to kind of Australia's oldest family-owned multi-generational wine companies, which is what it's all about. And they got 12 founding members on board, which was amazing. They launched in 2009 to great fanfare in Sydney. We didn't handle the launch, um, most unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but however, 
a year down the track, um, the person who did handle the launch wasn't able to to continue because of a conflict of interest. So we were lucky enough. I was just lucky to be in London with Tabilk at the right time. And I wrote my first media release for, for um, Australia's First Families of Wine from London. And then so a beautiful relationship has begun. And so we've worked with the guys since 2010, so for five years. We've seen them... Uh, that was their launch into the UK. So that was happening at the same time. Um, so we were lucky enough to be part of that. I, as I said, I was there with Tabilk and just happened to be able to be part of that, which was great. We've seen the, them launch into the UK, launch into Canada, launch into China. So we've been able to be involved with that as a kind of conduit between people on the ground in those countries. We've also obviously done some domestic activity. We've, we've created this unlocked franchise, which was, um, you know, very heavy duty tasting for both media and trade and then a, a consumer event. We've done that in Sydney and Brisbane and in Melbourne last year. We're taking that concept to the US in May, uh, and back to Canada. So, you know, look, I'm just, I'm very, very lucky to be working with such amazing brands with incredible stories and our business is obviously the umbrella for those 12 companies they all have their own PR and marketing that slots in underneath that um, but we're lucky to work with all of those so you know it's a real multi-stakeholder engagement but it's terrific and what we've really seen and I think this was very much driven under under Ross Brown's chairmanship was the rise of the next generation of, mm. the, of first families which I think is just a compelling story some, that, some of whom I've actually had on the podcast yeah well you've had Richard Birch I know certainly haven't you yeah, and Tom Barry yeah right of course so you know seeing those guys come through and what they're doing and that's just inspiring they're great 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 group of kids they're very smart they're very edu well educated they've got a vision you know they're the custodians of the future and I think First Families is very much about longevity you know these guys you know you've got your lumber 1849 to Bill 1860 you know Tyrrells they, they've been around for a long time they're here for the long haul mm. and their commitment to that next generation is is very obvious and it's it's fantastic i would think that one of the great things about working with those kind of um names is that there's no cynicism around it like i i think that it, it's it would be easy to be cynical about kind of flash in the pan types or, or new yeah. things like big you know oh, attention 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 it's like there's a lot of affection for those kind of brands you can't you can't begrudge them it's like ah oh. yeah it's it's like well, they're household names. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I, I, I used to love them. I, of course, I'll dedicate some attention to that kind of thing. Yeah. Look, we've still got a long way to go with First Families. You know, we're only sort of five years in and, you know, that's, as I said, they're here for the long haul. So we're looking at a whole lot of, of different stuff. But they've, they've very much been committed to um, a quite altruistic approach, really, about building uh, the profile or rebuilding the, the profile of quality Australian wine, mm. particularly, well, domestically, but certainly internationally. And that, that was a real reaction to what was happening, particularly in the UK, where, you know, Australian wine was sunshine in a bottle and, you know, it was all a bit low key and industrial and, and not really having a, a, an understanding of the provenance and history and, and quality behind these these wines that these top end wines that these guys produce so everything that we've done around unlocked and this that sort of unlocking the family sellers is giving people a once in a lifetime opportunity and what we don't do when when we get those 12 
principals on a panel, they don't really talk about the wine. They talk about their stories. They talk about their forebears. They talk about their iconic soil. They mm. talk about being custodians of land. You know, it, it, they're, they're very, very serious about that. And But they're fun because they all kind of um, bounce off each other and, you know, they're a really compelling group when they're all together. Mm. And are there any events coming up that you want to kind of let people know about? Um, not at this stage. We're looking at – well, we are doing a, 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 a bridged unlock version in Perth this mm -hmm. year in August. Um, so the Birch family are very much going to drive that over there, which will be terrific. Uh, and as part of that, we do a next-gen trip. So usually the next-geners go and they visit um, – each other's wineries. So we started in South Australia, we've done Victoria, we've done New South Wales. So, so Western Australia is the last one, which is great. So we're all the, the next geners will be heading over to Perth as well. And I'm sure Natalie and, and Richard Birch will look after them beautifully. Um, so that's coming up in Perth in August. Of course, a huge investment going into launching in the US, um, and Canada in May. So we've been working really closely with Wine Australia, who are helping to deliver that outcome as well as some the PR people for, for Wine Australia in the US and we work with a company called Praxis PR in Canada mm -hmm. who are terrific and they looked after the original Canadian launch. So look, we've got a heap of work to do um, with that, which has been terrific. You know, so that's been a lot of liaison, putting together a whole range of events in, in San Francisco, New York, and then in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Um, so yeah, that's been, that's taken up quite a lot of our time, as you can imagine. So all the guys are heading off in the middle of May. Well, on that note, I won't hold you up because it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do. But thank you very much for making some time and uh, and being on the Vincast. Uh, what's the best way for people to uh, to to find out all the info about uh, Fireworks PR and and follow you on as far as social media? Okay, so we're on Facebook at, at Fireworks PR Promotions and Events, Twitter at Fireworks PR. Instagram at Fireworks PR. There's a theme developing here, Joan. Um, Kathy Lane, we're around. We've, um, website is uh, www.fireworkspr.com.au. So we're we're there. Oh, LinkedIn, you know, we're everywhere. Definitely get in touch and yeah. uh, and keep an eye out for any of uh, those events that Kathy was talking about. But uh, again, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. And as always, thank you guys for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Guestbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino. And you can follow me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can also follow the podcast at The Vincast to find out as soon as a new episode is available. If you come to Facebook, you can find me there on uh, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. But definitely come to intrepidwino.com where you'll find every single episode of the podcast uh, as well as various writings that I've done in the past in my travels, tastings, um, musings, interviews, that kind of thing. Please come and subscribe to the podcast uh, on iTunes or Stitcher or Player FM uh, and that way you'll be able to download the episode as soon as it becomes available. And if you do subscribe to the podcast on any of those platforms, please do uh, give me a rating, a review would be fantastic. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and also, it would be great if you could share the podcast with your friends, uh, family, anyone who is interested in wine just like you. I look forward to next week's episode. Don't forget to get in touch with me if you would like to be part of the 50th episode recording. But until next time, bye. Bye.